Welcome back to another exciting season of the Election Whisperer on the cycle. And I know you guys have been waiting a bit for this season to kick up. Uh, blame that, along with your gas prices, on Vladimir Putin, who has made my first guest a hard man to pin down for good reason. Tom Nichols, uh, national security expert, ex-professor at the Naval War College. So you can see why this man is in high demand right now. But what I wanted to pin him down for is his book that came out last year that some of you may have missed. And it's just not a book you should miss. It's a definitional book for the moment that we're living in. And certainly for this podcast, that's why I, uh, I waited for Tom and I begged him and got him in here. And Tom, I'm so happy to have you. I'll let you uh, introduce yourself in just a second, but I want to give the title of the book. This book is called Our Own Worst Enemy. And um, it is about how peace and prosperity and decadence can lead to relative boredom. When we don't have someone to fight, we turn inwards and start fighting ourselves, all right? And uh, Tom's uh, thesis is just amazing. Because I only have him for a half an hour today, I'm gonna be uncharacteristically less verbal, and I'm gonna really try to get as much out of Tom as we can in this half an hour. Uh, and you might remember Tom from other books, his, his other great blockbuster New York Times book is Death of Expertise, which you guys can imagine I'm, I'm also pretty partial to. So Tom, tell me about your thesis. I usually sum up the thesis and then kind of go from there, but this, I just think it's such a important thesis uh, uh, that I want to hear it directly out of the horse's mouth for these, for the audience. Well, thanks, Rachel. It's great talking with you again. Um, I, the problem I started working on, and this, I'm sure people will think that somehow this was related to all of our current troubles over the past five years and, you know, the struggle with Trump and January 6th and all that. But really, this this book was um, kind of embedded in the death of expertise, because every time I talked about people not trusting experts and attacking established knowledge and falling down rabbit holes about conspiracies and things like that. People would always ask me, what does this mean for... And I, I did it mostly as a that book, kind of from the point of view of being a teacher and an expert. Um, but people would say, what does this have to do with democracy? And what does it say about democracy? And my answer always was, nothing good. Um, this is not going to work out well. And so I decided to just um, take a run directly at that question years ago. And I, I was actually blocked on this book for a while because I didn't want to come to the conclusions I was coming to, which is that our democracy, and I mean here in the United States and in Great Britain and in Poland and in Turkey and in India and other places, that modern democracy is coming apart not because the modern world is too difficult, but because it's too easy. Um, that we have, <clears throat> we've really experienced 30 years here at least and of course you know vladimir putin just brought all that to an end um, but we've experienced 30 years of peace and prosperity and let me just step back for a moment and say people always kind of lose their minds when i say that they say how can you say you know globalization made us all poor and <clears throat> and you know there were wars in afghanistan and iraq Look, compared to, say, my childhood in the 1960s, um, where people were being drafted and sent to foreign wars, um, you know, there, I mean, Americans really did sort of live a very good life while outsourcing their security problems to military volunteers. And I don't say that lightly. I've spent 25 years working with the military, and I know military folks and their families. It, 
these wars touch them, but that's a very small part of American society. And in part, we did that with volunteers um, so that we could, you know, as we were advised to do after 9-11, go to the mall. And we had the, the result of all of this is that our sense of entitlement and our expectations, <clears throat> excuse me, about what government is capable of doing for us have become astonishingly high. I mean, we think that if gas hits $4 a gallon, it's a failure of democracy. Everything's a failure of democracy. Gas is expensive. It's a failure of democracy. Um, you know, we're there. I had to put on a mask on an airplane. It's a failure of democracy. You know, um, we have really become um, incredibly um, demanding of things that really are not within the power of government to do. And as a result, we think that we, we are just nourished on this steady diet of news and social media and resentment and anger that every morning we wake up and say, somebody screwed me and my life isn't what I want it to be. And that's how democracies start to come apart. We're no longer resilient. We're no longer capable of thinking of ourselves as citizens who have to put aside our individual interest. There's a whole chapter in the book where I talk about <clears throat> classic, um, a classic work in social science that was done in the 1950s about a little village in Italy. And it's a, it, was, it was a great book and it's very readable. Um, the, the, an American New Dealer who became a professor, you know, an FDR New Dealer who was sort of disillusioned with all this, went off to Italy. And he, he was trying to explore the problem of why can't people be prosperous? Why can't they just cooperate and get along with each other? And this little village in Italy is starting to look like America in the 21st century. People only care about themselves. They don't want to help their neighbors. They, you know, have no sense of community responsibility. Um, and so I, I think I came to, in, you know, use, you use the word decadence, Rachel. Um, I think I came to the conclusion that it's, it's, it is in some measure decadence, but it's just, it's affluence, it's ease. Um, it, it's, um, it's the sense that nothing really matters and is very serious anymore. And even now, just to, to kind of put that cherry on the Sunday, even now while there's a war raging in Europe, millions of Americans are watching this kind of like a video game and, and coming up with completely unserious ideas about, oh, well, you know, maybe we ought to get in there and, you know, fly some jets or bomb some tank columns. This isn't Call of Duty, folks. This is, this could be World War Three if it gets out of hand. Yeah, and I, and I realize like the two of us have been, you know, amongst many others, I think that are better versed in, in national security and certainly the post-NATO World War II order and the nuclear era are very, very, very um, skeptical that we can escalate without escalation. <laughs> Yeah. And that escalation here could mean World War Three, right? So here's the thing that I like about this is that nobody has the balls to talk about the the elephant in the room. And this time I don't I mean that in a literal sense, not the Republican Party, which is us, the people. OK, and and we can we can say it's all the people's fault because the, I was just talking about how media is unserious. So like the war in Ukraine is even with all these bad hot takes you and I see, at least those people care and are actually paying attention. I think 50% of the public still at least can't can't tell you where Ukraine is in relation to Russia. And don't care. And they don't care. 
They do not care. They're not Googling Ukraine. They're not watching news about it. They're not, to them, this is something no more significant than a skirmish in the Middle East because they do not have the context. And, you know, that is the fault of our culture. Our culture is something that's driven primarily by elites. So, um, but, you know, we don't, we are not teaching people to be citizens, especially in this country. And the chickens are coming home to roost. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, um, when I was writing this and talking, you know, kind of arguing out some of these points with colleagues, they'd say, well, boy, this seems like blaming the victim. And, you know, it's easy for you elite professors to say we've never had it so good. And um, and I that's that's really not the point here. Um, you know, the problem is not that the very poorest among us are revolting against democracy because they are hungry and cold. They're not the ones that are the problem. Um, the very poorest people in America are actually um, still, you know, um, believe Democrats. in... Democrats. Well, they're Democrats, <laughs> but they're also, but they also, you know, they vote and, they're, and they care. And the very poorest don't vote because they don't know how. Um, but the people, and you know, you, this is partly why I wrote this in an international context. The people that you see really going for these nutball populist parties in Italy and in India and in Poland and in the United States, it's the middle class. Definitely. I mean, the, the January 6th rioters were all, they weren't a bunch of unemployed steel workers. They were middle class. They, they were people holding up their cell, their smartphones, and saying, uh, "I'm I'm charging into the the capital." But remember, when I get back to Texas, I'm a great realtor and I can sell your house. I mean, this is this was so true. Freaking yeah, Tom, insane. I mean, like, we, we forget, right? And like, here's the thing: is I, I keep trying to explain to people, it, it's not economics. There, it's a cold, it's it's grievance politics and identity based, right? And we're used to thinking about identity politics as a leftist thing, and that, of course, is not great electioneering stuff. But what's happening on the it's right white identity is politics. white identity, okay? And it's not an accident. It's being cultured through their media system. And so, you know, what you're not, what we are seeing, as Tom points out, is the, the, the most ardent and dangerous people out there right now are not these, uh, uh, you know, they're, they're directing some of the traffic. And, and there's certainly that grassroots anger about vaccines and mandates has a legitimate spark, but the fire is coming from the top down. <laughs> the most dangerous people out there are a bored middle class who think that their simply um, life isn't interesting enough and they want to be part of a great crusade. And whether that crusade is, you know, QAnon or Stop the Steal or whatever it is, these are people who are saying, I am materially comfortable, but spiritually empty in some way. And one of the other things you're seeing with a lot of the January 6th folks is how isolated they were, that there was a loneliness here where they just wanted to belong to something. And this is really the, you know, this is partly what happens when you have a society that is wealthy enough to allow us to pursue all our forms of leisure by ourselves, um, not really have to interact with a lot of other people. And I'm not the first one to notice this. I mean, Robert Putnam wrote his famous book, Bowling Alone. 
you know, people stopped joining bowling leagues. Um, yeah. One of my they friends pointed out with people they didn't already want to hang out with personally. Right. The great, the big yeah. sort, Bill Bishop's book, where people are, uh, you know, we we think that a lot. You know, you and I have talked a lot about gerrymandering and voter suppression, but the fact is. Um, if people keep sorting independently into their own neighborhoods, you won't have to gerrymander anymore because they don't live together anyway. Um, there was also um, uh, amusing ourselves to death where people are retreating from, this was written in 1985, where people are retreating from public life and civic life. But the, the underlying malady for all of this and the, the point I hit both in Death of Expertise and in Our Own Worst Enemy is that we have the real pandemic that's afflicting us is narcissism. We have become we have become just and again, narcissism is possible because of technology, because of affluence, because of high living standards where you don't really have to cooperate that much with other people to get things done. Exactly. I mean, when you have time to 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 start to do the kind of you know infighting and and um, you know grievance stuff that we've got going on now, it's because you don't have a more pressing focus, right, for your attention. So that's exactly right. Some of the poorest people in the world don't don't involve themselves in big political grievances because their their world is getting up and going to work every day. Um, and the amount of leisure time and the amount of time people can spend plugged in, you know, this reminds me of something my priest said one time when I, cause I'm Greek Orthodox and our services are so long. Right. And somebody said, father, you know, I can't go to church all Sunday morning. He said, if it was a football game, you'd sit there off for three hours, wouldn't you? Oh my God. It's so true. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm making this argument in my own work right now. Um, that, you know, here's the thing. It's not about aptitude. There are some people who have access and aptitude issues, and that generally is, is also powered by socialization. So like, like when I give a speech, I always tell the room, how many of you had parents that voted? And literally every one of them will raise their hands because that is the big intermediary other than college education, which can capture some people who miss that boat. But that's the predictor, socialization from your parents into voting, right? And so there are this chunk of America who have not been socialized into the process, don't have the opportunity to inherit that kind of civic virtue um, of responsibility from their parents. But predominantly, it's lack of giving a fuck, right? And they, we know this because these people cannot find Ukraine, but they can tell you every dimension of Tom Brady's football scandal, every fucking measurement of a football. And to bring it back to the amount of time they have for it, you know, I, I, I mean, even I kind of pushed back when my pre, I said, you know, Father, people, people want to go to football games at church they think of as an obligation. But it occurred to me, that, that conversation kept occurring to me when people would say, well, I don't have time. I'd say, well, read the Washington Post, read the New York Times, read you know, the, the Wall Street Journal, read a reputable newspaper for 20 minutes, and you'll be caught. Well, I don't have the time for do that, the, the time to do that. Yet, but you have the time to spend three hours going down rabbit holes on YouTube. And one of the things yeah. that really strikes me, um, you know, people give me static all the time. They say, don't you have a job? You tweet so much. Well, yeah, I work at home and I control my own schedule and I do, you know, I actually work two jobs at a time. Um, yeah, ditto. Social media is a whole second job I do on top of all the other shit I'm doing. Well, all and I teach, in, I teach in two separate places and now I'm, you know, moving from teaching to writing. Um, but it amazes me that when I look at 
kind of the average person today, when I think about my parents, right? My dad would get up in the morning, he'd go to work, he'd come home, he'd read the evening paper, he'd watch an hour of news where you just couldn't talk to him. You had half hour of local, half hour of national. And then he'd want to watch a little TV and go to bed because he had to go to work the next morning. I cannot imagine, um, I can't imagine, but I think you should all try to imagine, people listening, how much time we have now created in a leisure society where even working folks have hours at their disposal we have more time than any fucking generation in history it's right, well dude. you know pre- years ago president obama took a huge raft of shit for saying you know you if you would not want to be born in any other time in human history than right now this is clearly you know people live longer and they but one of the measures he said was the number of hours you need to work to actually feed yourself and live has been steadily right. declining yeah, yeah, and, and 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 you and you list this at the beginning of the book, which again, everybody listening to this podcast, please buy this book because this season is going to be hyper focused on what I call the rough clay of the American population, <laughs> and Tom is going to set you up really nice. Well, and I should probably point out, Rachel, before people get too jumpy about this, you know, this is not some ivory tower creed. I myself, I came from a working class family. I actually come from a blue collar family. My parents were high school dropouts you know, depression era folks and all that stuff. So this wasn't, this isn't me like growing up in, you know, Lexington, you know, or, or Long Island and saying the great unwashed masses are so annoying. You know, the, what's the, what was the thing from the Mel, the peasants are revolting. Yes, you ought to, you know, know, but, but that's not it. Uh, that, you know, this is not just a, um, you know, a screed against the, the great unwashed masses. I mean, this is, and by the way, you started to say American behavior. The problem is, and the, and, uh, you know, you see this around the world because one of the arguments for this has been, well, people are reacting against globalization, but it's not. It's the middle class reacting against affluence and boredom and the kind of things you're seeing Americans doing. Look at Canada. Look at the insane trucker um, um, uh, blockade in Ottawa. You know, it, it. this is the result of a certain kind of standard of living. You're seeing it in Great Britain, you're seeing it in Turkey, you're seeing it in Poland, you're seeing it in Italy. Um, you know, and this is why when democracies go down, they're, they're, if they're going to survive, they have to survive together. And by the way, the one good thing that's gonna come out of this nightmare in Ukraine, God forbid that it turns into a nuclear thing, but, but, but it, it's amazing how the West and the democracies have suddenly said, wow, um, you know, maybe maybe there's something worth defending in this. Maybe maybe those uh, jerks at Fox News who keep talking about how great Putin is, maybe we wouldn't actually want to live with that guy. Yeah, let's hope. I mean, I, I do think I do think that the, like the you know if the, if you could say to be a silver lining and there's you know <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm using that, but it's you know obviously there's no silver lining of what Putin's doing to Ukraine. But I will say it has provided a contrast of autocracy versus democracy. And it is humanizing and personalizing this concept of loss of freedom, loss of democracy, and what that entails, right? It's also demonstrating in a pretty clear way what happens when you put a single madman in charge of one of these world's largest military arsenals and then have absolutely no check on his power. Because, Because you thought, and in our case, we did it because we thought it would be a gas. Because there were people who literally just said, wouldn't this be fun? Yeah, they did. Some of them did. Like, they were like, I'm voting for him because I think he's going to be a total fuck up. Yeah, I mean, I was shocked when people, you know, and I don't mean on social media where people say dumb things, you know, including me. Um, but I mean, people in my 
personal life who said, oh, I hope he, I hope he smashes everything to the ground. And I said, you know, that's because you've never seen what it looks like when that happens. You yep. think it would be, a, you think it's going to be a TV show and it'll be awesome because you've never actually seen all of the gears of government get stripped and fall no. apart and, and have you've all never the... not known where a meal's going to come from, right? So like rationing itself, when you, I mean, I've taken kind of like a master's degree like solo independent study into military history, strong emphasis on World War II, obviously. But when you look through, like, let me tell you guys, when your society stops functioning, say when the peaceful transfer of power gets disrupted and you manage to install an autocrat, like shit does not, it's not nice, right? So you can't do whatever you want. You don't have all your time for wreck. And eventually, you may not have food, may not have water. I, I was going through my late father's uh, papers here, and I found a bunch of stuff from World War II, including our family's gas rationing coupons. Yeah. And, you yeah. know, I mean, it, it just, again, I think we've gotten used to the idea that as long as, the one thing Americans cannot take is if life isn't interesting. Right and, right, and we have to make it interesting. And we have to make it interesting because yeah. we think everything is going to be a Marvel Comics Universe movie. Yeah, yeah, I was trying to explain people that about the media. I said, listen, the media system does suck, okay? But it's not because of corporate ownership. It is what it eats, and it eats us. Yeah, okay? it's giving and us... And it's responding to market demands. We want the view, and we want to talk about the guy on Dancing on the Stars. We don't want to fucking show orphans. Every, every time people bitch at me about train. this, I always snap back at them, and I say, look, in other words, what you're saying is stop giving us what we want. Stop! Stop exceeding to our demo. You know why? Why is t, you know TV so gladiatorial and miserable and people? Yeah, it's because it's what you want. It's because they because I was on a panel some years ago with um, Dan Baltz from the Washington Post. It was a great moment because somebody in the audience stood up and said, "You know, you could help us out with all that because we we're talking about the media and expertise and why don't people know stuff and." guy stands up in the audience and says, you know, you could help us out with this. You could publish explainers and analysis that help us to, to understand these issues. And Balts very quietly nodded and he said, we do publish them. You won't read them. Yep, that's exactly right. I mean, the, the, there's, so, you know, that's why, like, ultimately, our problems, like, if we can, if we can dodge the current bullets that are coming our way now, one international, significantly international, I mean, a, a threat that we haven't seen in 80 years, and we're the luckiest, by the way, just to go back to Obama, it is true that wealth inequality is bigger than it has been since the 1920s, but it is also true at the same time that our poorer citizens are living a standard of life that the 1920s could only motherfucking dream about. And we've been in peace for 80 years. It has really been hard to have that argument with people when they say, well, there's, um, you know, are you talking about um, income inequality or are you talking about living standards? Because this is the thing, and you know, this is partly a book I couldn't have written. I, I couldn't have written Our Own Worst Enemy when I was 40. Um, I'm now 61. And, and the, the amount of change within my single adult lifetime, my one adult lifetime, 
uh, has been remarkable. And I would argue, having been grown up, not poor, but on the edge of poor, kind of working class, okay, right? You know, my right. my family right below me, they were poor. Like I had cousins on welfare. My dad, my dad had a 10th grade education. My mom had a ninth grade education. But um, having grown up with that, I would say the difference between how really wealthy people live now and how sort of working and middle class people live is actually smaller of a daily difference because the things that create the things that super wealth bring you are not obvious things. When I was a kid, you know, and uh, you might have caught the tail end of this yourself, Rachel. You know how you knew how somebody was rich? They had two TVs, <laughs> and they had air conditioning, a dishwasher, a dishwasher. I didn't realize that. Like we were actually well off because I grew up with a dishwasher. <laughs> oh, di we didn't get a dishwasher until I was a teenager. And and it was almost like scandalous. Like, oh, you know, my mom's got a dishwasher. Oh, check out the rich kid, you know. Um, but, yeah, yeah. but. Yeah, but when Bill Maher, I was on Bill Maher's show last, his new rules was focused on basically the same lecture I used to give my intro students, which is I've got really, I mean, this is like first day shit, right? I got some big news for you guys. You are more free, more wealthy, more healthy than any generation in history. And I know that's the exact opposite of the conversation you hear, but let me tell you why. And then I walk them through American political development. I mean, in the 1920s, the, there's no Fox News, okay? And you sure as shit wouldn't see them out there trolling for Putin during a fucking war. <laughs> Well, I want people. I want people to think about this. That if you walked into a if you walked into a rich person's house, as I rarely did, that was the other thing. We didn't see a lot, of, and we we need to talk yeah. for a minute about the role of social media in generating this kind of envy and resentment. But yeah. the few times that I ever walked into a really well-off person's house, I instantly noticed they have carpeting, they have um, they have really good wall-to-wall -wall carpeting, they have air conditioning, they have multiple televisions, they have a dishwasher. They have a garbage disposal, um, you know. Now, as I say in the book, all all Americans have all of these things, and if you're super rich, your tell your 50 inch television doesn't have extra rich guy pixels in it that are any different from the guy down the street. Um, the way that you know you're super rich is that you actually there are things that you can't see. You have better health care. You have better. Um, you take more vacations, you travel more, you have investments that are invisible to the naked eye. Mm -hmm. um, but what's happened, and the super rich are not really the people that have, we haven't really gone to war with each other over income inequality. We have gone to war with each other over small differences in income inequality because we spend all our time on Facebook looking at each other's vacation pictures. And we know that this creates depression and yeah. envy and anger yeah. and a kind of itching sense of resentment that people just can't scratch. You have people out there saying, I can't believe these rich guys, you know, living the life they live and I'm struggling to get by while driving my $40,000 pickup truck. No doubt. I'm bitching about gas prices, but the fucking truck I'm driving was 50K. <laughs> 50,000, you know, SUVs and, and I, you know, I live in Rhode Island, which is not exactly, you know, rural, a rural area. I am surrounded by blinged out gigantic pickup trucks that have not a scrap, not a dent. I mean, you can tell a working guy's pickup truck, right? It's got rat, it's got a rack, it's got dents, it's got dirt. It's obviously sometimes have... I am surrounded by shining ebony black 
you know, pimped out, um, you know, um, driven by young 20-somethings. And I, and I, I mean, I just, it's like, of course this was all going to collapse in misery. I saw the, and I'm not an economist, I just knew that the housing crash was going to come, you know, 20 odd years ago. I was shopping for my first house here in Rhode Island. I moved down here in my 30s and I was renting and and we were driving around the island. I was driving around with this realtor and and every there was all there were all these McMansions near the water with four by fours in them. But the, the thing was, they all had kid toys out front. And I'm like, how are young families affording, you know, $50,000 trucks and McMansions? And she said, this realtor said point blank, the increase in value of houses, this was 20 years ago. This was before the crash. She said, they cash out the equity in their parents' houses and they put down a down payment and then they live house poor with more house than they need. And I said, that's insane. This is all going to collapse. They're going to default. Their parents are going to end up defaulting. And this real, I never forgot it, Rachel. This this realtor was driving and she nodded. She's looking at the window and she said, you understand it's not my job to tell people not to buy houses, right? <laughs> and I said, holy shit. I said, this whole thing, like you could feel a fuse burning. And of course, what happens? Then people said, why didn't the government stop me? Why didn't banks stop me? Why wasn't I protected from myself? Why does the government, you know, let me do, you know, this is, this is why the book, I came back to the book of, yes, there are bad elites out there. There are people, there are shysters and crooks and, you know, they're all there. But the thing is, you are you are your own worst enemy because this they're giving you what you wanted and no doubt. you know i want to buy a house i'm i'm not qualified to buy a house but i want to have a mcmansion and i want a four by four and the government and the banks and everybody else went okay sure yeah, sure well, knock yourself out right <laughs> exactly i so you know here's the thing i, I really think is, is so important just to to keep you know hammering home and i'm so glad you wrote this book Again, it's called Your Own, Our Own Worst Enemy. It is talking about the role that the people, we the people are playing in our, our current clusterfuck. And it is a major contributing factor to what's going on. It's true that- the Technically the word clusterfuck is not in the book, by the way. <laughs> and when I write books, clusterfuck will be in the book, all right? Um, but in any case, yeah, I mean, it is true that there's a right-wing media and there's a segment of the population that's no, now so siloed, getting them actual real information and then getting them to believe it is now become a science, right? But at the end of the day, our broader problem is this rough clay that we have to work with that Tom has focused on and our political culture, which is producing a citizenry not cut out for self-government. And, you know, that is a harsh verdict, like a doctor um, diagnosis from the Dr. B and from Tom here. But it's a one that we cannot move forward and fix what's going on, stave off autocracy and, um, you know, repair democracy without addressing head on. I'll even be a little bipartisan about it before we leave, because, I mean, the, the right wing media sphere has become of which I used to be a part. I mean, I used to write for you know places like National Review and the Federalist. Well, you know, you fought for the vision, and, and like 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 so many good ideas, it's a good idea that went horribly wrong. Well, practice, it's right? <laughs> there's that's a whole segment in itself. But the you know there is a problem in in the liberal media, which is that it feeds us um, stories of panic and disaster, and makes us feel like we're deeply involved in dramatic events. Um, you know, the pandemic was a bit, you saw this during the pandemic. 
um, which just was, you know, instead of saying, look, you, you know, we got to get vaccinated and you got to wear a mask. And it became every day was, you know, this jolt. Um, you see the same thing, for example, during school shootings. I say I point out in the book. Um, there was a study at Northeastern that that said you literally cannot get people to believe that schools are safer than they used to be in the 90s, um, even though statistically it's true because they are fed a steady diet of immediate, horrible, bad news. And this plays the both of these approaches play to our our narcissism. You are the most important person in the world. Great events are happening to you. The school shooting that just happened 3,000 miles from you is right down the street from you. The truck that overturned is down the street from you. You are living it in real time. And and we we feed on that because it gives some drama to to a life where, you know, drama used to be dealing with your kids. Um, no. Drama was, you know, coming home from your job and, you know, um, going out with your friends. I mean, losing Friday night football. Yeah. You watched with your whole community and everyone was friends, even if they didn't agree on who to vote for for president. Right. And that's because instead of these imagistic versions of each other, that we actually knew each other. We ran into each other because tech had not allowed us to quite literally silo ourselves into worlds where there's very little personal interaction. I just did the Charlie Kirk show just to, to wrap this up. I just did the Charlie Kirk show and uh, it's a, a show for debate. People can't right? see the stink guy I just gave you. <laughs> well, Kirk was like genuinely surprised to talk to a Democrat like me, right? I mean, to him, I'm not, I'm some kind of like um, unicorn and really I'm the modal Democrat, right? The people that he is focused on in this distorted environment um, it, they are they are outliers, right? And we make outliers stand for everybody modal, right? So it is uh, it's a dangerous situation when you have low civic literacy, decadence, comfort, and uh, resentment to do but fight each other. A lot so of resentment. I'm Tom, I can't stress enough how happy I am that you carved out. I know your media schedule has been hectic because I've been watching you on my own TV going all around. So thank you so much for coming and talking about this book, this thesis that I think is just absolutely paramount for people to read. Thanks, Rachel. And thanks for, thanks for having me on. I was glad we were able to finally catch up. Yeah, me too. It was really fun.